0: Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Let me ask you this. How many of you were with us in the very beginning when we started the book of John? Just right about, okay. Quite a few of us were here. Okay, Scott's going like this in the back, uh, making sure that we knew he was with us. But, you know, it's interesting. I look back to see when we started this, and we started it on August 20th, 2017. So it's it's been three and a half years since we started this book. But I want to let you know, you know, we've taken some breaks in between, uh, and also last year, at this time, we were planning to do what we're doing right now and go to, to the resurrection of Jesus and finish up the book of John, but obviously last year happened and we weren't able to do that. But by the grace of God, and I say that by the grace of God, we all learned you don't boast in what you're going to do. You say, if the Lord is willing, uh, if he's willing, and I believe he is, we plan to, uh, to finish up the book of John uh, this time, in this uh, this section of our time of being together for the next six or seven weeks. And um, it's important to remember that this book here that was written, every book in this book and every letter in this book were written with uh, to a specific people, and it was written with a specific purpose. This book was not just written just so that we would have another book in the world. It was written for a specific purpose purpose. And John is one of, the, uh, one of the few books that are in this book that clearly states what the purpose of this book is, why he wrote this. And it's found in John 20, verses 30 through 31. I want to look at that as we're jumping back into this, this book. I want us to remember what was the purpose? Why did John write this? Why did God write this through John? And it says in verse 30, chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then here's the purpose. It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So clearly here, the book of John was written to testify that Jesus is indeed the eternal God, the Son of God, who took on flesh. He is 100%, 100% God. He is 100% man. And John wants his readers to see the glory of Jesus, to see his glory, to see his deity, and to believe in him in order that we might have eternal life. That's why this book was written. And this morning, by the grace of God, I desire for us to see the glory of Christ uh, in this passage. And as most of you know, we have entitled this concluding series, we've entitled it The Coronation. And here in the U.S., here in the West, we don't really know much about coronations, do we? Um, But in countries where they have kings and queens, a coronation is the public handing over of the title of, and powers to a, a new monarch. And it's meant to be a, an extravagant ceremony that's filled with honor and glory and rejoicing. It's, it's meant to be a time of celebration. But in Jesus' case, in his coronation, the true king, the rightful heir of all things, we're going to see that his coronation is marked not by rejoicing and honor and glory. Well, it is glory, but we're going to see that it's marked by betrayal, abandonment, rejection, and his crown is a crown of of thorns. It's a crown of shame, uh, or was meant to be, and it's accompanied with mockings and floggings and eventually led to his death by crucifixion. And so this morning, as we enter into the coronation, we're going to be in Act 1, the first scene. It's, it's the scene where he's in the garden, his betrayal in the garden. And if you'll remember, just hours before they came to the garden, he and his disciples are in the upper room. And it says that Jesus is, becomes troubled in his spirit. He's having his final Passover meal with his disciples. But he's troubled in spirit. He is disturbed in his spirit because he knew that one of his 12, one of his closest companions, had it in his heart to betray him. And it says in chapter 13 that after Jesus took a, a, a piece of bread, dipped it, and handed it, the morsel, to Judas Iscariot. It says that Satan entered into Judas, and then Judas went out, to gather his band, his army, to come against Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, and it was night. The hour had come. And we need to understand that it's nighttime. It's an hour that Jesus had been waiting for, but it is a dark hour. And in today's passage, we see that Jesus and his disciples are no longer in the upper room. They've left it, and they've gone out to the Mount of Olives, where there was a garden, and it's the garden, in other Gospels, it tells us it's the Garden of Gethsemane, which means oil press. And it was a garden that Judas would have known about, because Jesus and his disciples often met there. And, you know, before this night, this garden, or the Mount of Olives, seems to be Jesus's happy place. This is somewhere that he would go and get away from the crowds with his disciples. He would pray together with them. He would. It sounds like he would go and sleep there on the Mount of Olives too. This was his happy place. And let me ask you this. Do you guys have anywhere in this world that you would consider to be your Mount of Olives? Do you have a place where you're able to, to get away? And um, personally, I do. I have uh, several places. If it's the week-to-week, I have a, a room in my house I like to go to to get away uh, there's also times that I can go outside and walk in a certain area that I can just get away. But if I can be where I want to be, and if I had the money to do it, you know where my Mount of Olives is? Yellowstone National Park. Now, I like to go to the beach too, Jared, so that's, but if I had the money, uh, I like to go to Yellowstone National Park. And many of you might remember when I was giving my testimony that the initial time that I went there, this actually was a time that was very difficult for me, uh, but It was a a very um, trying time. It was a a time of great turmoil when Kelly and I were going through a a separation. And as you know, God took our broken marriage and brought it back together. He restored it. And now when I go to Yellowstone, I've been able to take youth groups out there. I've been able to take groups of men. I've been able to take my children and Kelly out there. And uh, it's, it's turned into a Mount of Olives because there's this one special place that's out there. It's called Sportsman Lake. And it's, this is a picture of it. This, it's a that's a volcanic rock there you see in the in the corner right there that you can j- get on and jump off into the lake. But it's one of those places that you go 11 and a half miles out, and it, it's it's so secluded from everywhere everything around that you can see at night the Milky Way in its richness and its and its glory because there's there's no light pollution from surrounding cities. It's a place that I love to get away from all distractions. And my question is, do you have a place like that? Maybe not like this, because but I'm saying in your, your ordinary day today. And you might say, well, I don't have the money to have that. Well, let me just remind you that Jesus didn't either when he was on during his earthly ministry. But that is important for us to have a place that we can get alone and be with God and that's where the that's what the garden of gethsemane was for Jesus and his disciples. And it appears that Jesus took advantage of this insider information information and it says in verse 3 that so Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees went there with the lanterns and torches and Weapons. Now, we know that these soldiers, that this band of soldiers were Roman soldiers because the Greek word that is used for band of soldiers is actually used to describe a Roman cohort. And a Roman cohort could consist of anywhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. And most of the time, when you think about this arrest, if you've seen movies and uh, plays, it's usually not that many people, it's usually 20 to 30 people. And But it's believed that it could could have been as many as 600 and as few as 200. And how many were there? That's not, you know, we're not going to sit up here and argue about that because that's not the point of this passage. But what I do want to point out here is that apparently they had come uh, to capture Jesus with a search party, and it may be they may have thought that when Jesus saw them, he was going to flee and hide behind rocks and in caves and behind trees, and they need, needed lanterns, even though it was a full moon. We know it was a full moon that night because of Passover, but they, they may have thought that they were going to need lanterns and that they were going to need to, to capture him because he was going to hide like David did from King Saul and that they were going to need to have an, area, uh, an area-wide manhunt during that time. Secondly, they may have also been brought that many people in order to arrest the rest of the disciples that were there. We're not exactly sure, but we know that they came to capture Jesus and they came prepared. Well, actually, I wanna say they came over-prepared on one hand, but on the other, they came under-prepared, okay? And we're gonna see that in a little bit as we get further into our passage. But verse four, notice it says that, then Jesus, knowing, knowing all that would happen to him, He came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, this is one of the most important truths that I want us to see in our passage this morning. This is one of the most important things I want us to see as we're thinking about the coronation of Jesus. And, And the truth is this, that when the powers of darkness came to arrest Jesus, when they came to capture him, to put him to death, scripture is clear, it clearly reveals that instead of Jesus stepping back, Instead of Jesus being afraid in fear and hiding, it says that Jesus came forward. This is important to see. I want us to see that Jesus stepped out. That is, that is the one uh, truth that I want us to be sure that we don't miss here this morning, is that when he he came in, in contact with danger, he didn't run. He stepped out. And he stepped out and he stood between his disciples and he stood between pending danger. So Jesus is standing between the two. And he stepped out in three distinct ways. These are the three gospel truths that I want us to see here in this passage this morning. He stepped out. When he stepped out, he stepped out in willing obedience. He stepped out in godly glory. And number three, he stepped out in gospel love. I want to look at all three of these gospel truths, beginning with how Jesus stepped out in willing obedience obedience. Now, again, in verse 4, it says that uh, we're going to look at Jesus stepping out in willing obedience. And in verse 4, it says that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Again, Jesus knew fully what was about to happen to him. All four gospels are clear in this, that Jesus knew what was going to happen. The, the hour, this is what he calls the hour. This hour that was upon him, Jesus had been thinking about it for a long time. If you remember, he told his disciples on numerous occasions that he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to be rejected by, by the leaders. And he has to be spit upon and, and mocked and, and beaten and crucified. And so he knew about this before he got there. And in Luke 9, verse 51 Luke records that when the days drew near for him, speaking of the hour, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, he set his face like flint. He set his will. I am going to do what the Father sent me to do. And then in Luke 12, a little bit later in the book of Luke, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen to him, and we need to, we need to realize he wasn't surprised. He wasn't trapped unexpectedly, and instead of you know concealing himself, he intentionally goes to a place that he knows he's going to get captured in. He knew that Judas knew about this. And, and it's clear to, to understand that no one took his life from him. We know this because John 10, verse 17 through 18, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one, verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." The thing I want us to see here is that Jesus was was willingly obedient. That God the Father did not send him to earth and force him to do something against his will, any more than he forces us as his children. Do, Do you guys realize that God does not want us to serve him because we're afraid we're gonna go to hell? That is not the motivation of a disciple of Jesus, any more than it was for Jesus. And I'm going to remind you, the reason that we love Jesus, the reason that we serve Jesus is because of this passage right here, because he first loved us and he first served us. That is our motivation and that was his motivation. And, you know, the soldiers came out, they were armed, they had lanterns, but they, they did this unnecessarily. This is the point I want us to see here. They didn't need this. They came over prepared, right? They, they didn't capture him. They they didn't overpower him. He laid his life down like a lamb that is led to slaughter. So first gospel truth that I want us to see here is that Jesus stepped out in willing obedience. Secondly, it's important for us to see that Jesus stepped out in godly glory. Um, When when they came to uh, Jesus, when they encountered him, what did they see? When they first laid eyes on him, what did they see? They, they saw, according to Scripture, a common peasant man. We know this because in Isaiah 53, it says that like a root out of parched ground, speaking of Jesus, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He didn't look like a king, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He looked like an ordinary man. And remember back in when John the Baptist, at the beginning of his ministry, in, I think it's chapter two of John, when Jesus comes onto the scene and John is trying to sh- tell the crowds, he's like, there's somebody among you who is the Messiah. And he, what does he say? He says, behold, which means look right here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we need to see that when, when, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and they saw him in the garden, they came to what seemed to be an ordinary man, when in reality, he is the lion that is dressed in sheep's clothing. He was, and I want to be clear about what I mean by that. The lion, he is 100% God, dressed in sheep's clothing. He was 100% man. He wasn't pretending to be a man, he took on flesh and became a man. Now remember, Jesus steps out and he says, Who do you seek? Well, in verse 5, they answer him. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, if you have an ESV or NIV translation, you won't see this, but if you have like the NAS, the New American Standard, or the King James Version, or the New King James Version, you'll see that when Jesus says, I am he, that the word he is in italics. And that's because in the original Greek, that word is not there. The translators add that there. So what actually happened when Jesus was standing before these men and they they said, um, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus looks at them and says, I am. What, what happens after that? They fall back onto the ground. Now, this is, this is very interesting because it echoes, if you remember back in Exodus 3 in the Old Testament, that when Moses is, is standing before the burning bush and he's having a conversation with God, God's saying, I want you to go down to Egypt and I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Remember that? Remember that? And what does Moses say? He says, okay, when I go to the Israelites and, I, uh, and they ask me, who sent you? What is his name? What does God say? He says, tell them, I am sent you. That's how God addressed himself. The verb to be. I am. None of us can say that, right? I, or We shouldn't say that. Um." This is, you know, this is also the same phrase that Jesus uses in John chapter 8. He's having this argument with the Jews about Abraham, and the, and the Jews basically say to him, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than Abraham? And Jesus says, actually, before Abraham was, I am. And it says that they bent over, picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because Jesus was clearly taking the divine name that's reserved only for God and he was applying it to himself. They understood that he was claiming to be God. And you know, if if he wasn't God, this was the most blasphemous thing that he could do as a mere man. And this is, you know, when you think about it and we've been as we've been studying cults, as we've been studying false religions in for over the past few months, one of the, this is the, the area that they will attack Jesus in. They will attack his deity. And I want to make something very clear here. There's, there's people that will say, you know, I really have a great high respect for Jesus. He was a great moral teacher. I, I have a great respect for him, but I, I reject his deity. And if, if, if that's you this morning, um, I, want, I hope you'll change your mind this morning after we go through this passage. Because... Um, If you believe that, I I think it's because either you haven't really read the scriptures, you haven't really looked at what Jesus said about himself. He did teach some great things. And one of those things is that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he is God. Um, Either you haven't read his words or you fail to understand what they are. So I'm praying that, I've been praying that God by his Holy Spirit will just open our eyes, even the church, our eyes afresh to to the deity of Christ. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about someone trying to say that Jesus was just a great moral teacher. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And here's what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said Would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Jesus steps out unarmed and he utters two words and his opponents melt like uh, butter They they helplessly fall back on the the ground. Now, I don't know exactly, none of us know exactly what they saw, what happened there, but we do know that they encountered Jesus' deity and they could not stand before him. And this is a truth we need to understand, that that you cannot stand before Jesus in his presence on your own. Scripture teaches what? What? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so we can either bow our knee now, and that's if if you're in the church, if you're truly in the church, you have done that. You have declared you are the Son of God, you are God, and you have bowed your knee, or you can bow later when He returns. But we don't want, I would plead with you, don't wait till then. Bow your knee today, and you won't regret it if you do. And I I want us to see in this passage right here that Jesus is clearly in control right now. He is clearly in the driver's seat. Um, He is God, and he is man. He is the lion that's dressed in sheep's clothing. And so we see that Jesus stepped out in godly glory, which leads me to our final gospel truth, which is that Jesus stepped out in gospel love. And I want to show you guys something. You may already know this, but I hadn't seen it till I, I've read this. I don't know how many times I've read this passage, but never seen this. But um, I want to show you something that I, I found when I was doing some study here on this passage. You know, after making it clear that, that Jesus was willing to be caught and that he's in control of the situation. Verse seven, it says that he asked them again. Okay, so think about this. They fell on the ground. I don't know if they're still laying there. It really doesn't matter, but he says, whom, now whom did you say you seek? You know, and it says that they said Jesus of Nazareth. You know, still, it's almost like Jesus has given them another chance, like you can turn around and leave now. But for some reason, they, they don't make the connection of what just happened. And so they get up and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. This was to f- fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is what I had never seen before. You know, when Jesus says, if you seek me, let these men go, that phrase, let them go, means forgive them. I want you to think about this. It, it, it you can, it's, can be translated, forgive them. This is a picture of the gospel. Remember, Jesus steps out between his disciples and their enemies, right? And Jesus says, forgive them, let them go and take me. That is a picture of the gospel. And you know, Jesus could have saved himself, couldn't he? We've clearly seen that. He said, I am, and they just fell to the ground. In another gospel, it says that Jesus says, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels and they will come down here and swoop down here and mop up this tiny army of ants in a blink of an eye? You know how many um, uh, 12 legions would be? It's 72,000 angels. Imagine if 72,000 angels landed on the earth. It says that when the the uh, at the resurrection, one angel shook the whole earth. Imagine seventy-two thousand. He had access to this, and Jesus could have saved himself. He could have, and he could have temporarily saved these men, his disciples. But just think about this: if he had, we would all have perished. Jesus doesn't save himself. Instead. He says, and he actually says this to the father prior to these soldiers coming into the garden. He says, not my will, but yours be done. He says to the father, I am willing to drink the cup that you have given me. And all throughout the Old Testament, the cup, is they refer to the cup of God. And it's, it's, what it refers to is God's judgment, the day of judgment when we will stand before the Lord and and God will pour out punishment and suffering and judgment on the wicked. Everyone who has sinned will experience the wrath of God unless someone else does it for them. And here's here's the good news. Jesus stepped out. And he says, Forgive them. Take me. Let them go. Take me. I will drink their cup. We need to think about that. I mean, really think about that truth. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he agree to take the cup? What's found in verse nine is because he loves his sheep. He didn't want any of us to perish. He didn't want one to perish. Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves his church. And you know, there are two responses that you can give to what Jesus did for us. You can gladly accept what he did for us, you can, And that would look like you falling at his feet and worshiping him for drinking your cup that you deserved. In other words, you can believe in him and have eternal life and go free. Not like you're going to run away from Jesus, but free to serve Jesus from, the, from a, a life, a heart of life. Or you can be like Peter. Remember Peter? And I love Peter. Uh, he, he's hilarious, and he reminds, him, he reminds me of myself. Do you, do you see yourself in him? Um, he reminds me of me because I always am doing awkward things uh, at the wrong time, right? In the inappropriate in times or inopportune in, 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 in times, and Peter does that in, in this situation. There's no exception, And just think about what was happening here. Jesus has set up this scene beautifully, right? He sees them coming to him in the dark, and and he steps out. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. They fall on the ground. They give up. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Let these people go take me. And then all of a sudden, ah! You got Peter with the sword, right? I... You know, I don't know, you know, we know what happens. Spoiler alert, Jesus rises from the dead, you know. And I just, I just sometimes wonder, what was it like sitting around with Peter after that? You know, after he's been forgiven, that he's been reinstated. Oh, here comes Peter, watch out. You know, it's one of those things like, the ear? You were defending us by cutting off his ear? I mean, what were you doing? You know, And, and you know, it's just, I heard a, a pastor say, you know, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't go, you know, on second thought, just take him. <laughs> you know, it's just, one of those, it's just funny in one sense. And I'm not making fun of him like I'm not like, I'm making fun of him because I can relate to Peter. And what does Jesus say? He says, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And what I, what I think we need to see about Peter is that he is an example of someone who doesn't believe that Jesus knows what he's doing. That's why he steps forward, isn't it? Jesus has everything under control. He's calm. He's already shown that he can do anything he wants. And Peter's like, no, that's not good enough. And he pulls out a sword, right? And um, you might say, well, you know, it's pretty honorable. He's told him back in the, at, the, at the table uh, that he was willing to die for him, right? But it's really not. It's really not honorable what, what Peter did because uh, Peter's doing this because he thinks Jesus isn't doing enough, he thinks he needs to add to what Jesus is doing. He feels like he's got to step in and take charge of the situation instead of rest. Jesus is in the room. Have you parents, have you ever been like had children and one of your children is doing something over here in the corner that this child doesn't like and you're sitting right there and he's over, this one's trying to be in the, get in the way and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm sitting right here. Like, that's what Jesus is in the, he's in the room right now. He's in control, and Peter Peter thinks, this isn't good enough. I've got to step in. I'm going to be the hero. But you've got to understand, Jesus did not command him to do that. He did something on his own. And so in doing so, Peter is getting in the way of God's purposes. Have you ever been in that place? And I think what Jesus is, is saying to Peter is, Peter, my father has called me to drink the cup. And once again, you're trying to stop me from doing what God has called me to do. You're you're trying to keep me from being obedient. Get behind me. You're you're imposing your dreams on me. I'm not the Messiah that you want me to be right now. But I will be. You will be glad that you're not going to get to do what you did. Aren't you glad that Peter didn't succeed in this? If he had, which he couldn't, but if he had, our sins would not have been paid for. And Jesus says, basically, I'm not going to be the Messiah you want me to be. I am who I am. I'm not going to be conformed to a Messiah that is not who I am. And he's saying, believe in me and be saved. And so, you know, this is a picture of, Peter is a picture of what it looks like when, we don't trust Jesus, and we feel like we gotta strive to to do things better. And but it's also a, a picture of hope for us. I hope that we'll see that it's a picture of hope because there's good news that if you are opposing Jesus, and there's a lots of ways you can oppose Jesus, you might be blatantly opposing Jesus. You might be saying, "No, he is not the Son of God. He, I do not want him," and you're totally rejecting him. It all you can also oppose him by living in secret sin. You're, you're in a place where you're the only one that knows about whatever this, this thing is. You're opposing him. Jesus knows, obviously. Or maybe you've been trying to serve in a way that he hasn't called you to serve. And you're burdened. You're, you're burned out. You're not living in joy. Um, you're, you're, you're like Martha. Remember when Martha was serving and Mary's sitting there at his feet? She thinks she's doing the, Martha thought she was doing the right thing when really she needed to be resting at Jesus' feet. You might be opposing Jesus, but here's the hope that this passage teaches, that if you will stop when Jesus confronts you, if you'll stop, and, and in other words, if you'll confess your sin and you'll put your sword back in its sheath, in other words, repent and turn to Jesus, here's the good news. Jesus can take your mess and clean it up. He can we call it redeem in the Bible, but he can take what the locusts have eaten and bring back life from it. That's our God. That's what Jesus does, and he does it in this passage when he takes he touches Malchus's ear. Now it doesn't say he picked up the ear that was on the ground and put it on. It says he touched it and healed him. In other words, he created. It sounds like he created a new ear right there, and he and he loved his enemies. He loved the very ones that were taking him away. And he showed his glory in the midst of Peter's mess. That is such good news. Now, we need to understand that, G- that, that he's, he corrects Peter. And that's the area that we, I need to grow in, to be able to receive correction. And, and God corrects us in many different ways. We're living in a culture that, no, you can't correct anything, but not in, that's, that will not be so in the church, will it? If we want Jesus to move in amongst us, we have got to be an open people to his loving correction because he loved Peter, he corrected him, and he didn't reject him. That is, we got to see, he did not reject him because of what Peter had done. As a matter of fact, next week, Lord willing, we're going to see that this isn't the last time Peter is going to need God to forgive him. Um, and, and I want us to be be clear here that That, uh, you know, Jesus loves his sheep. He doesn't want any of uh, of us to perish. He is committed to us. He is not going to leave us, even when we get in the way and think we've messed everything up. Uh, He he can redeem anything. If you'll truly confess it, if you'll truly repent, if you'll truly come to him, this passage teaches us that God is willing to, to be glorified even in our messes. And so we see that Jesus stepped out in willing obedience, in godly glory, and in gospel love. He drank that cup of wrath that was meant for us. He was obedient, and he drank the cup for us so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, we may have life in his name. Amen? Amen.